Hi, this morning. How you doing? Uh, we're going to continue on our series through core uh, values. Uh, today we're talking about strategic multiplication. Uh, this is a core value of the fellowship, but well, more, than, more importantly than a core value, it's really our mission statement. Um, doing whatever it takes to make disciples of Jesus Christ who gather, grow, and go. And that mission of our church is evident in everything we do. We want to be able to multiply or strategically multiply disciples of Jesus who turn to him and turn from themselves, whether it be in this room or in children's or in preschool, in your life group, uh, if as God lead us to build new campuses from this city to all into the earth, as Acts 1-8 tells us, we want to be able to multiply people who turn to Jesus. Why? Because this is the mandate of Jesus. After Jesus had defeated the grave, he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, what we know to be true, what we know to be called the Great Commission, he said, look, because this happened, because I defeated the grave, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them as I have taught you. And what did he teach us? This is really important. What did he teach us? He taught us to love him with our entirety, to love him with our all, and to love others like he would. So what, what he taught us was to give him glory, because all authority is his, not ours. All, everything was, that he said was important, not what we say. Not what I say. So give him authority, give him glory, and treat others' needs as more important than our own. We don't do this naturally. Nor naturally, we seek to glory grab for ourselves, don't we? This means yes. How many of you, whether it be at work or at home with your kids, when you were growing up yourselves, you sought to glory grab? You see, uh, this... This problem isn't just our own. It was evident in the garden. It was pronounced in Genesis 11.4. Let me show it to you. Let me show you what it says in Genesis 11.4. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. You know this, the Tower of the Babel. So, listen, here was the purpose. This is the point. So that we can make our names great. So that we can make a name great for ourselves. Romans 3.23 from the hand of Paul that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that was it. That's the sin right there. That's it. What do we fall short of? Giving God glory. We sought to glory in our own selves. We sought to build altars to ourselves. We sought to worship ourselves. And so we fail to bring him glory naturally. We seek to fight for it for ourselves. That's the sin. We worship ourselves and we don't tend to pursue him unless he prompts us. Here's the beauty, though. How many of you are grateful that God has a remedy for every problem we create? How many of you are grateful that God has an answer for our problems? In Genesis 1, we see this answer pronounced. In fact, the answer is born at the, by, before the end of Genesis 11. In Genesis 12:1, God busts through the noise of multiple gods and a polytheistic people and makes his appeal to us through one man. His name was Abram. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country. Go from your people, leave your father's household to a land that I will show you. Now, what he is saying, and we're going to expound this on more, but he's asking Abram to leave everything that he knows. In fact, Jesus said the same call to us in Luke 14 when he was talking to his disciples about what it means to be a disciple. 
He said, in fact, you can't be my disciple unless you, listen, really intense words, hate your father, mother, brother, sister, spouse, yes, even your own life. And anyone who tries to fight for their own life will lose it. Anyone who gives up their life for my sake will find life. Anyone who tries to hold to that which is right here, that is temporary, that is passing away, if that becomes primary or even competing for my agenda in your life, that person is not my disciple. Doesn't mix words. So in Abram's call or in the call of Jesus, it is leave everything that's comfortable and follow me. It says here that, that he was called to leave his country. Here's what I want to explain to you. Ur was when, where <laughs> this promise or this call comes down. Ur is in Macedonia. We call it Ur of the Chaldeans. This is the birthplace of Abram, whose father was Terah. Abram was the oldest of three sons, and one would die. But in Ur, we have uh, an incredibly sophisticated society, a rich and a wealthy people, and Abram is amongst a rich and wealthy family, one that has status. And how many of you know that the world around you teaches your stuff determines your status? Right? How many of you know that the more you can accumulate, the more status you are told the world says you have. So what you have determines who you are. Okay, so Abram had a lot of stuff. And it's so sophisticated that we, we in America really only became a common convenience around 1850, early 1900. Uh, indoor plumbing became a regular thing. Well, here's the deal. We credit indoor plumbing, at least historically, we did it prematurely. Historically, we've credited indoor plumbing to Babylon and here's the problem with that. I say prematurely because it's evidence now, historians and archaeologists have found that there were remnants of indoor plumbing in Ur, in Macedonia, at the time of Abram, predating Babylon by 1,600 years. So when I say that he was in a comfortable society, you know, he was in a comfortable society. He was in a very sophisticated people, and he's saying, I want you to leave this place that is rich and comfortable for you, one where you are lifted high. I want you to leave your father's house. And he was the oldest of three, so that meant he had the birthright and the blessing. That meant that two-thirds of the entire inheritance of Terah was going to him. It meant that his name was tied to Terah's, and that meant he was significant because of that in the, amongst these people. And so all of the goods are coming to you per your earthly father. But I want you to leave that too. And then... I want you to leave these people and their practices. They're polytheistic. What they do is they have a tendency to seek to appease many gods that they ascribe to all of these things. They, they ascribe a god to the rain. They ascribe a god to the grain. They ascribe gods to each of these things. And what they seek to do is they want to appease them. They want to do what will not offend them. And they don't want to do that which will so that they can receive blessing. They, be, they believe in blessing and curses amongst this polytheism. And amidst all of this polytheism, you have this booming voice show up to Abram while he's in Ur and he gets this promise. This promise or this call to leave everything that you know and to follow me. That's the only promise he had. He said, follow me into a land I will show you, but in order to do it, you're going to have to turn west. And that was a really important call. He just said, follow me into the west. When you read in Genesis 11:4 the problem it says that the people moved east and they said let's build a city for ourselves and a, a tower in Babel that will reach the heavens and make our name great. He said I want you to get away from these people's practices where they turn east and follow themselves. I want you to turn your back on the east and follow me into the west. And the only promise I'm giving you right now in Genesis 12:1 
because you have to separate Genesis 12.1 and Genesis 12.2 and 3. They need to be separated. The only call and promise I'm giving you is me. And am I enough? Am I enough? Well, here's the beauty. So often, we, we uh, how many of you have ever had a moment with the Lord that was so profound, you often go back to it? You often recall that moment where God clearly spoke to you. Okay, well, this is what's happening in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. You see, this, this promise was given in Ur while Abram was still in Ur with his family. However, at the time that he's recalling this, he's not in Ur any longer. Now, what was, the, what was the call? Leave your country, leave these people, leave your father's house. The end of chapter 11. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, to Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur, which is in the east of the Chaldeans, Macedonia, to go to Canaan, which would be the promised land. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So at the time he re, you, we see chapter 12, verse 1, Abram is in Haran with who? His father. Who was he supposed to leave? His father and his father's household. Who was he supposed to leave? Your people. Who did he take with him? All of them. He takes his family with him. He follows his father and he goes with him. And they go almost to the promised land, almost to the place that they were called to, but they got so far and they stopped. Why? Let me, let me encourage you. How many of you have ever heard the clear call of God on your life, but it was really hard, and so you kind of put your own interpretation on it? You kind of gave God some helpful hints so that you could actually do what he's asked you to do? Okay, so like maybe, maybe Abram had a conversation with Terah and said, hey, I'm supposed to go west and face God. I'm supposed to go this way. And Terah goes, let's pack, let's go. And he forgot to tell him, but you're not supposed to come. Because this promise isn't for you. This promise is for me. As he gets into Haran and he's there with his father's household and all of his, his wife and all of his extended family and they're there outside of the, the country of Ur. They've left one thing of the three that he was called to leave. And it won't be till near, Haran's, uh, near the death of his father in Haran that he's going to take off and actually see this answer completed. He's going to follow through with what God called him to do in the first place. But here's the thing. How many of you know that answering yes to God, specifically when you don't know what you're saying yes to, is terrifying? And that's exactly what he's being called to do. He's being called to leave everything and everyone that he knows that is comfortable to follow God into the wild west, into the wild unknown, and the only promise he has is the presence of God. And he says, I need your yes I'm not giving you any more detail. I will not even tell you the land I'm taking you to. I will show you that when you take the first step west. But I need your yes without knowing what you're saying yes to. And we're talking a lot right here about the call of God upon a man to meet God in his presence. Isaiah 55 says this in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. I love that verse, and here's why I love that verse. Because that moniker at the end declares the Lord. This is an, a word-for-word, word, like just scribing, if you will. Isaiah is literally reciting word-for-word word the message that he felt in his heart God gave him to say to the people, my ways aren't your ways, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. 
they exceed your own. How many of you today know that people care about other people's opinions? How many of you will admit today that your opinion is incredibly important and people should listen to you? Okay. We are in love with our own opinion and our own thought. If you're not sure of that, check social media and check how many times you check it daily. How many of you put a post on there and can't wait to go back and see how many people liked it? Not you. That's just me. That's just me. I'm the one that will put something out there with my own opinion in hopes that it'll sound so profound that it'll cause people to think or go, hmm, and they'll hit that little heart button or the thumbs up, right? We are infatuated. In fact, I believe we've become addicted by affirmation and then we're addicted to it. And so it becomes incredibly hard, specifically in a world like this, to accept that my opinion really doesn't matter. If you showed up for that, you showed up for the wrong thing. And the same goes for you. If you're here to give me your opinion, I really shouldn't care. Because his ways are higher, his thoughts exceed my own. And the thing that I find myself uh, drawn to when I'm addicted to affirmation is the comfort that I can control and the comfort that this world can provide. The very thing that God called Abram to leave and turn his back on, the very thing that God and Jesus called us to turn our back on. And he only called us into him, into his presence. He calls us to himself. Psalm 37, five says this, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will bring it to pass. Now my natural tendency, and I don't know if it's yours, is I wanna reverse that that order. I want to reverse that entire scripture and go, God prove it, then I'll trust you, then I'll commit. But it's read succinctly and written intentionally because faith requires that we commit and say yes without knowing what we're saying yes to. Trust him and his character and who he is and he will bring it to pass. So I want you to write this down. We gain God's perspective by being in God's presence. We don't gain the way that God sees things unless we are present with him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 said, Trust in the Lord with your all, with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. He'll call you west, but he's calling Abram to who? Is he calling him to a bunch of goods? He's going to show him the goods. He's going to explain what those are, but first he calls him to himself. And he says, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust that I know more than you do. I have a way that is best for you and it's better than what you can provide for yourself, but you have to trust me. You have to allow, just like Savvy saying a moment ago, all else to fade away. Take the whole world, but give me Jesus. This is what singing that means. And so he says, I want you to follow me, but you won't gain my perspective on things unless you are present with me. So here it is. I don't want you just to turn and face me. I want you to embrace me. I want you to come to me and sit with me. Matthew 14, uh, the famous story of how Peter went to him walking on the water is an imperative story for us. Because here's the beauty of that story. Let me break it down for you. We talk all the time about how Peter sank. But man, he got to walk on water as if it were dry land before his fit started to dip. And that was only preceded by him making a choice. His choice was to sit in a boat, a vessel that was man-made with his closest friends on the planet in the midst of a storm that was going to take his life. It was a certainty. They were going to die. They'd been fighting this thing all night. 
and they were tired. And here's the key to the whole passage. Peter is their best chance at survival. Why? Because Peter knows this vessel and he knows this water. He was called from this water better than anyone else in the boat. And when he realizes, when John says, what is that on the water? It looks like a ghost. And he realizes that's the Lord. He goes, my best chance at survival is not in my own strength or my own gifts or my own knowledge. My best chance of making it is with him. So he says, Lord, if that's you, call me to you. And God says, what? Come. Immediately, Peter jumps to his side and he goes to him walking in the water. And, and I, we only focus on the fact he doubted and he started to sink. We start to forget. Anyone here ever walked on water as if it were dry land? That's a pretty important thing. He calls him to himself and he accepts. He says yes without even thinking about it. Doesn't allow logic to enter the conversation. He just knows that his logic is out the window because he can't save himself. So he jumps over the side in a, a very uh, pure response to the Lord and he's able to see a miracle. How many of you need the miraculous in your life? Whether that miracul miraculous come in the physical, in the emotional, Maybe it's in the mental or in the spiritual, but God has called you out unto himself and you keep looking back east. He's called you out to the west, but you keep negotiating yourself what's comfortable and you keep thinking about what you're giving up and you keep forgetting what you're gaining. See, in 2 Timothy, he, he write, Paul writes to me and says, we've not been given a spirit of fear when we think on the Lord. We've not been given a spirit of fear. We've been given a spirit of of power and love and of sound mind. The ability to say yes without knowing what we're saying yes to because when God calls us from something, he always calls us to something and he's never gonna call us to something where he is not. He calls us to leave the things that we place our value in, our faith in, our comfort in, and he calls us to himself. And it's when we are present with him, we gain his perspective because we start to be strengthened by his spirit. Amen? And so we walk out onto the great unknown facing west with him. First John says that God is love and that perfect love casts out all fear. When you're present with perfect love, cast fear is out. It'll leave. Now, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He, his very character, his definition is truth. But it also says he's love. And here it says, perfect love casts out fear. How many of you have ever had someone look at you and they have a problem and you immediately go, well, A plus B equals C, therefore. Okay? They go, I have a problem. Well, the scriptures say this and it says this and our church does this, therefore. And they go, why are you preaching at me? Because truth doesn't cast out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote it like this. Though I preach with the eloquence of the angels, but I have not love, I am what? A clanging symbol that simply offends them. And it turns them off. Because the truth not backed by the love and presence of God no longer becomes truth. It, be, it doesn't change the truth. They just don't receive it as truth. They hear it as preaching and offense. His presence gives me his perspective. 
And it gives me an ability to give away the truth in love because his power is what speaks through me. Listen, my opinion offers you nothing. So I've begged God just to speak today to whoever here needs to hear it. Isaiah 55, 6, 7 says this, preceding that my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. The two verses leading straight up to that one are this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Who, who has sinned? Romans 3.23 said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So who sinned? All. Okay, so it excludes none of us. So it says, like, let the wicked forsake their ways, the unrighteous forsake their thoughts, and trust me. Let them turn to God and let him have mercy on them, for our God will grant them complete and free pardon. Let us turn to him while the Lord may be found. Let the wicked turn to the Lord that he may give them free pardon. Here it is. Next point. Our point in life, our point in life, like the sole purpose of your existence is determined by the very person of Jesus. That's why he calls us to himself. Your point in life doesn't, doesn't add up apart from the person of Jesus, the one who created you in his very image. And says that he gave you a bent, like Proverbs 22, 6, that he gave you a specific purpose, task, and way. And without him, it's not going to make sense. Genesis 12, 8, this is the setting for our entire story today. Genesis 12, 8, this is the setting of, of Abram, but it is where we find ourselves right now. It's where they found themselves in the garden. There's a tension that is created in this very passage. It says, from there he went on towards the hills of the east of Bethel. Now, by 12.8, okay, I've not read 2 and 3, I'm about to get there. I've read 12.1. But by 12.8, Terah's dead, and Abram is in the, the, the land of Canaan, the promised land of God, and he is surveying the land. And it says, he went on there from, to the hills of the east from Bethel, and he pitched his tent. And with Bethel to the west, and I, A-I, to the east, there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. Here it is. The reason I say this is our tension, our position, is because Bethel is defined, literally means the holy presence of God or the house of God, his presence, which is what Abram was called out unto, was to him. Bethel means presence of God. I love, what this, I love the way this is pronounced in English. It's just, it's just fun to me. A-I. We pronounce that I. So I, or let me just have fun with that, self is to the east. And the problem that was created in Genesis eleven four, where we went to the east and built a city and a tower to make our name great. I is to the east. And here's the tension that gets created. He said, those who will turn to me. We all build an altar right here. We all put a tent over it and we get comfortable. But here's the point. Which way will you face your altar? Will you face your altar towards the Lord in the West in His presence, accepting His embrace, or will we turn it east in the place that we can control and that which is comfortable for us, worshiping ourselves? We are called away from this stuff as disciples of Jesus, and that's what we're seeking to strategically multiply here. People who will continually walk the narrow path that will turn their back on the stuff and on their back on what they can control and worship themselves and worship him. Simply turn their back on 
everything we know and follow him into the great unknown with our altar facing west at all points. The question is, which way will we face our, our altar? Because the people of God who know him, who have experienced and tasted and seen that he is good, will always do this. People of God will sing, fade away, let the world fade away. All I want is Jesus. And they're not lying. They want the presence of God more than they want God's provision. Hello? How many of you know that you've had a tendency in the world around you, just because we're broken and we're born into a broken world, have a tendency to want the goods more than that we want the God who gives? Some of us said, yeah, that's true. The rest of us like, I don't know if I want to admit that just yet. Here it is. The people of God who've experienced the goodness and greatness of God just want his presence more than the, the things that he provides. Matthew 6, Jesus said it to us in what was his most profound sermon on the planet. He turned to the people and he said something incredibly stark. It was this. You cannot choose to love me and stuff. He said, he said the call of Genesis 12.1 and 12.8. He Puts the, he says, you're putting your altar down and you get to decide which way you'll turn it. But you cannot serve both. You're either love one or hate the other. So you can't continue to face here and call me yours. Like, I, I, you're not mine. You are, you are worshiping self over here in the land of I. Or you can turn your back on that stuff and come after me and recognize the greatness and the goodness that, that is found in my presence. And then I will provide for you. I will always provide for you. I will never let you be without need. We trust that his way is best. Listen, this is incredibly important. Write it down. Do we trust that God's way is best, not simply better? Like that he has a profound and perfect plan for you because he created you in his image before the foundation of the world and he knows you better than anyone else on the planet, loves you more than anyone else in existence that he has a plan for you that exceeds anything that you can plan or dream for yourself. His thoughts are higher, his ways far more vast. How many of you go, I don't know, man, I dream pretty big. I think I can outdream God. That will, okay, that will keep you here. Do you hear that? I don't know, I dream pretty big. I think I can outdream the creator of the universe and everyone that I see who intimately, intently loves me, wants me for himself, and has called me out from my dreaming to accept him and let him dream for me and through me and let me collaborate with him in bringing the kingdom to Mount Juliet and all ends of the earth. Because here's the thing. When we choose him, John 10, we turn our back on the thief, the one who is the liar who takes from us, and we accept the good shepherd. He said what? He said, I came to give life and give it what? Abundant. Here's, here's the abundance. Here's the promise. Genesis 12, 2, 3. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name, Abram, great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's too often that we're motivated by the goods more than we are God. That's why we got to read 12, 1 and separate it and get there first, because that's the point. But here's the thing. How many of you are grateful that your God is really good, really kind? Let's see what he just gave Abram. He just gave Abram someone who's incredibly old with a wife who is barren. And past the postmenopausal state, 
He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a family through her. What? Peter says, if that's you, tell me to come. Come. He walks on water. God takes that which was dead, the dead place, and he brings life from it. And not just life, life that will become so rampant that it'll become a nation. The blessing will come through the son, Isaac. I'm going to bless that which was dead and bring it to life. I'm going to give you family. Then he goes on and says, I'm going to give you fame. Do you know that it's not Jews or Christians like even Muslims today revere Father Abraham, you know? They may not sing it like we do, but all of the world remembers Father Abraham. They revere him. He was given favor. Wherever he went, the favor of God was upon him. Blessings came and those who cursed him were cursed. But here's the, here's the best one. Fortune was given to Abram. Not in the sense of riches or goods. It says that the promise is all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise was still made following the call. Yes without saying yes to. Back in earth, all people will be blessed through you. This is a precursor, a prophecy to Jesus and how he, Jesus will actually come from the lineage of Abram and write and connect all peoples unto God. Jew and Gentile alike will have opportunity to be saved from a broken world, an ability to turn from stuff and I and self to find his presence and taste and see how good it is. They'll find that his ways are higher and better and he dreams beyond what you can dream for yourself. But it was found in Jesus and it was a promise that was made and appealed to a man all the way back in Genesis 12 when the problem pronounced itself. We want to make our name great. Proverbs 12, 7 and 8. I'm going to give this land, it says, to your offspring. Can you imagine... Hearing that when you're 75 years old and your wife is barren, (laughs) it's no wonder that Sarah laughed. The question this morning is which way will we face? And which way will we face those, uh, will we teach those who are following us to face? This is the Great Commission. And for us to understand the Great Commission, we have to understand that we are following him into the great unknown. But we're also teaching, because we trust the character of God, those who are following behind us, we're leading them to turn their altars west as well. You know that you're leading someone, right? How many of you had that profound moment when you held your child for the first time and you looked up and their eyes were staring at you? And you saw your reflection, Even if it's only in that sense, this is who you're leading. So the question is, this church is not about just information. Let me be clear. We're talking about incarnation over information. We are talking about transformation over information. We are seeking to strategically multiply life change over just giving away information and making sure that everyone has a lot of facts that they can say or throw about God. We want people to turn and embrace his presence so that their life will be abundant and the people following them will also experience the freedom that comes by Jesus away from the lies of this broken world. We're talking about strategically multiplying true disciples in every person in this room, through every ministry in this house, through every life group that meets in the houses around this city, to every small group, to every campus, to all the way to every single nation, we want to lift high the name of Jesus.
because we've chosen his way and strategically multiply the freedom that we've experienced and the hope that we have in him. How many of you have friends who have little to no hope? Acts 1.8, he said, you'll be my martyrs, my witnesses from here and to Jerusalem, Judea, and all ends of the earth. How many of you are grateful that even when you follow him into the great unknown, he's gracious when you try to interpret a little bit because he's God of a million chances. How many of you have given your interpretation, softened the blow, couched it a little bit for yourself so you could be obedient and God was like, okay, I, I give, I'm with you. But you've learned over time that you don't need to do that as much because in his presence is the best. Amen? So Father, this morning, we just desire for your presence. We desire your presence here, that it would permeate this place and fill us, consume us, have its way in us. And God, we ask that you would find a people obedient to turn and face you, respond to you. And God, however you desire for us to, whether it be to build an altar or to simply turn that altar, this morning we ask that you would come and have your way with me. In Jesus' name. Amen.